All of these sort of regular things that biotech companies do, which is like snapping up patents so that they can get investor dollars and moving forward, they're intersecting with this culture in the psychedelics world that's sort of like anti-ownership. And so that this is the result of that is like these forces will clash and they oppose with one another. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Shayla Love, senior staff writer at Vice Media. She's a science journalist whose writing has appeared in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, The Guardian, and more. Her recent focus has been the field of psychedelics, notably how it exists and interacts with the forces of what some refer to as late-stage capitalism. Shayla and I discussed whether there is a way to corporatize psychedelics responsibly, who has the most to gain in the new landscape of psychedelic capitalism, why the for-profit entity known as Compass Pathways attempted to patent a form of synthetic psilocybin, how and why the accompanying challenge to this patent from a group called FTO, or Freedom to Operate, originated, whether state decriminalization of psychedelics is at all at odds with federal medicalization, and a lot more. It's a fascinating conversation that I know you'll enjoy. I personally learned a lot. But before we get into all that, let me tell you about something at Esalen that I'm excited about. It's the new LEAP program. Live and learn at Esalen for four weeks as part of our live extended education program, or LEAP. Under the guidance of our skilled faculty and surrounded by a cohort of 12 other learners, students will be challenged to expand their personal growth edges and open up to greater discoveries of self and community. Learn more and apply at esalen.org. Now here's my conversation with Shayla Love. Shayla, you've written a, a host of articles for Vice Magazine over the past six months concerning psychedelics. I'd love to ask you, what interests you the most about this new era of psychedelic capitalism and what elements do you find especially troubling? Yeah, that's a great place to start. And I, I always want to say at the outset that I come at this topic as a mental health reporter and a science journalist and somebody who's covered um, psychology in the mind and, and mental well-being uh, for a while. So most of my interest in this has to do with um, people with different kinds of emotional distress eventually wanting to seek out these compounds for various reasons, um, you know, that are being researched right now, whether that's depression or PTSD, um, smoking cessation, et cetera, all of the different things that are uh, in, in the works. And so that that's sort of where where I come at this from. And so if you're a person who's had any kind of emotional distress in your life, you know that trying to access services are really expensive. I mean, I'm, I've been in therapy for a long time and I know from firsthand experience that every time you try to get a therapist, they're out of network or you can't, you know, they're not available. They're not taking new clients. It costs like $250 a session. And so the inaccessibility of mental health care has been something that I've worried about for a long time. And it just seems like this insurmountable problem because everything's already set up that way. Therapists are already out of network. So with psychedelics, um, and this new era of psychedelic mainstreaming that we're entering, what really fascinates me about it is that we have the ability right at the beginning to say things like, uh, this needs to be affordable. This, the therapy part needs to be covered by insurance. What can we do to make sure that everybody has access to the most um, safe and affordable treatments? And so I think really just like the place that we're at in the development where we have room to air these concerns now before everything's entrenched is what really draws me to this topic Shayla, one term that came up in the recent Vice documentary in which you're featured, psychedelic capitalism, where a lot of the issues that we're talking about today get bandied about, is late stage capitalism. And I was hoping that you would be able to unpack that term for the benefit of this conversation. 
Yeah. So this is a loaded term. Basically, late stage capitalism, it describes like a stage of capitalism where industry um, has become really consolidated. And so whereas like capitalism is supposed to be, um, you know, private actors who are in control of capital and they operate in this free market and, you know, with healthy competition, instead, late stage capitalism is sort of like industry has become consolidated and there's sort of these monopolies and the market is not as sort of free and competitive as it's supposed to be. Karl Marx never used the word late capitalism, um, but some other people, Marxists did later on. It was actually originally coined to be about the period uh, that started with the end of World War II and then through the early 70s. But I think now when I hear people use late stage capitalism and certainly the way that it's used in the documentary is it's sort of like a, a way to reference just sort of like wealth inequality or like the incredible imbalance of power between those who have money or have capital and those who don't. Um, and, and then it's sort of like, I think Annie Lowry calls it like a catch-all for incidents that that capture this inequality. So I think some examples are like when Nordstrom sells jeans with fake mud on them for $425 or uh, like pr prisoners having to spend money to make phone calls, you know, when, when they're incarcerated. Um, so I, I think that, that this, this phrase really just talks about like the consequences of what happens when the number one motive for everything is profit. In your research, who would you say has the most to gain in this new emerging landscape? Is it pharmaceutical companies? Is it state governments who can impose taxation on new businesses? Is it the entrepreneurs? As far as like a business sector, this psychedelics is kind of a weird one as it is right now. So for example, Big Pharma hasn't really entered this space at all yet. Like there's no like Pfizer or Merck psilocybin, for example. So uh, we, we have a playing field where it's mostly like medium to small biotech companies or new companies that are emerging. I, I think that they are the ones who are going to be able to gain the most right now. They're sort of first on the scene. There's a lot of filing for patents and IP happening right now. And before like the big dogs get involved, there's really a lot of space to gobble up. And so that's really who I've been paying attention to and spending a lot of time on. As of now, um, really the only state that's imminently going to be legalizing psilocybin in any way is Oregon. And I don't really see like a lot of... Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure they'll benefit a bit, but it's not in the same way that some of these uh, these new companies are that are emerging. And I think part of it is like um, we have a very interesting model where the government has not provided really any research dollars in this space. So we have the first government grant 50 years last year for uh, smoking cessation and psilocybin to Johns Hopkins. But other than that, it's just been philanthropic money. And then recently it's been venture capitalist money. And so that kind of shows the divide of like what um, people are really hoping to get out of this. All those VCs that are putting money into this space, they're expecting a return on investment. So I think that's really where we can see um, people expecting to gain the you know the research into psychedelics like i said has been funded in large part philanthropically of people who are really dedicated to making this research happen and that's really only been in the past like 20 years or so i think that that will start to change because like i said the first government grant was just given and i and i would hope that more are to follow uh, but it's set up this really difficult um, research environment where a lot of the huge clinical trials that are happening right now are paid by 
for-profit companies and they're being hosted by academic institutions. So it's this weird like um, conflation of, of industry and academia that as a science reporter, I haven't really seen before because a lot of the times when I write about research, they are coming from government grants and they're sort of either solely in academia or they're solely for-profit. And this is kind of a mix of both. That is really interesting. You know, I think it would be instructive at this point for our conversation if you could talk to us a bit about Compass Pathways. They were awarded a patent for synthetic psilocybin in 2020, and if I'm not mistaken, they have they have four more. So, really, who is Compass, and why would Compass want to employ an aggressive patent strategy? Yeah, yeah. And so, the thing about Compass Pathways, and I, I've spoken about this a bit before, is that they they really have the the privilege and also the the non-privilege of being the first rock star psychedelic for-profit company. So a lot of their decisions have a lot of attention paid to them. And, and they're unique in some ways, but they're they're not unique in others in terms of their business model and, and their practices. So they do have uh, patents on their form of synthetic psilocybin. Um, those patents are being challenged right now, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but basically, Compass is funding the phase two trial for psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and is going to be one of the first to send their data to the FDA for approval. They, along with you, Sona are the closest with psilocybin for depression to submit their data to the FDA. So again, you have this weird overlap of like a for-profit business that's entering what was previously a nonprofit philanthropic space. And then they're doing the things that biotech companies often do, which is that they're acquiring IP. Um, they are recruiting money from investors and VCs who expect a return on investment. And so a lot of my reporting on Compass has been sort of outlining how um, kind of these regular business practices don't really seem to jive with the rest of the psychedelic community. The idea of ownership, for example, feels really wrong to people who know that psilocybin has been used for thousands of years and by many people for just the purposes that Compass is um, trying to get patents on. And so I think there's a really interesting cultural clash happening here, which is that like everybody knows that it takes a ton of money to do clinical trials. I've never disputed this fact. I think everybody knows that it takes millions, sometimes billions of dollars to bring a drug through like all the phases and then present to FDA. Um, but with the Compass issue, I think the issue is really like, not should they be filing for patents, but if the patents that they filed are really eligible. And there are some criteria that we can go over about like what makes a patent eligible or not. And I, I've been really um, interested in just seeing how this space will deal with the eligibility of patents and um, you know what should be owned and what shouldn't be. Well, yeah. So I guess I, I would ask, what have they tried to patent besides synthetic psilocybin? So the patents that they own are for different versions of synthetic psilocybin. Those are, those are their only granted U.S. patents. And so what that means is, um, we'll get into a little chemistry here. They have, a, they have a patent on their version of psilocybin, which is a polymorph. So it's just a different solid form of the psilocybin molecule. But it's still the psilocybin molecule in there. It's just arranged into a different shape um, than previous forms of psilocybin that we've, that we've known. And so the challenges to um, their patent are arguing that this polymorph or this specific sh solid shape 
of psilocybin isn't actually new, but it has existed before. And this is very technical, right? Because like I said, the molecule is exactly the same. Once you break down the the solid and and it dissolves in the body, it's the same molecule that's existed before. Um, But you're not supposed to be able to have a patent on something that isn't both brand new or novel or non-obvious. So like, it's not just like obvious to make it. And so um, there's a nonprofit called Freedom to Operate, which has challenged Compass's patents on these grounds, saying that this specific form of psilocybin has existed before, has been made before. Um, and that that's really what the challenge their patent's about. Now, there have been some uh, patent applications that they've put in that have not been granted, that make claims around a uh, set and setting and uh, different kinds of like disease indications. So that includes, um, you know, some of the claims in the set and setting patent application were like, kind of just like the furnishings of the room or like what exactly the practitioner would do with the other person. So that's a patent application. It's not granted. Um, but just the inclusion of that, I think, again, it, it harkens back to this bigger question, which is bigger than Compass too, which is just that how, how who gets to own what pieces of this therapeutic process? And then my interest in that is like, how will that affect cost down the line? And I think also it it affects who the investors will give money to, because if you have an industry where government research dollars have not been given yet, this is all driven by investor money. And so if an investor knows that a certain company has all these patents, then they're going to direct their money in that direction. And you sort of create a monopoly, even if it doesn't affect cost down the line, because that's just the only company that gets money. And I think, again, this is a space in which a plurality of ideas is really important for delivery. Um, So with patents, I think there's more power to them than just literally what you own with the patent. It's also about like who who gets the money and who doesn't. Is there an analog in the history of patents or the the history of of capitalism kind of like you have a wild west situation where people are are sniffing around and they realize there's lots of money to be made here and there's lots of intellectual property to be staked yeah has this happened before something similar has happened before um and there was a supreme court case about it and it was about the patenting of genes so scientists would discover a gene and they would say i've discovered this gene and i'm going to patent it a gene is technically a natural product it occurs naturally in our body Um, and there were thousands of gene patents until a supreme court case ruled uh, that they weren't they weren't valid before and so it invalidated hundreds of already granted patents. And so I think there's always been kind of a tricky question about natural products and what version of a natural product is really new and what isn't new. Um, And like I said, this is happening much broader than Compass. There's been cases that I've written about where, you know, somebody will file a patent for how to bioengineer an E. coli to produce psilocybin. But then researchers will say, I published on that you know, 10 years ago, how can you file a patent on that? Or somebody um, written about this too will file a patent for LSD for food allergies. And then people are saying, but you've never done a clinical trial on that, but now they own the IP to that. So I think there's all of these growing pains around this brand new field of like treatment options for every treatment under the sun and all of these new conditions. And it's going to have to be figured out what patents are eligible and which ones aren't, which ones are going to be challenged and which ones are going to be upheld. I think what's important to note is that, um, you know, speaking of money, it's so expensive to challenge a patent once it's been granted. So it's like, if a company can consolidate a lot of patents and have a lot of power in terms of who's investing in them and they're running all the research trials, it's also people who have immense privilege and wealth and power who are able to select which patents they want to challenge. So Freedom to Operate spent, you know, close to a million dollars just to challenge uh, these 
three, four of Compass's patents. So who 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 is going to be able to do that for for any patent that they that they don't really like? It's really like all of this decision making is happening at a very high level. And where does the money come from from Freedom to Operate? Is it coming from another venture capitalist? Uh, so, so that comes from philanthropy mostly. So, Kerry Turnbull heads uh, Freedom to Operate, and he um, told me that he ponied up half the money himself. And then, once he felt like they were going to have to, they were going to have a strong challenge, um, then he opened it up to donations. And then they had other people uh, donating money for them to do that. But you know, you had to pay very specialized lawyers who are experts in patent law and also have like a biochemistry background. They paid for all of these chemists and crystallographers to go and find old samples of psilocybin stored in labs so that they could do testing on them. They sent a sample to the Synchrotron in Chicago, which is like this huge x-ray the size of a football field. It was like, it was really intensive work all to show this little solid, <laughs> solid form of psilocybin uh, like maybe existed before. And so, you know, that I, I think, again, these are the growing pains of like a brand new industry that there's so much excitement about is that um, all of these sort of regular things that biotech companies do, which is like snapping up patents so that they can get investor dollars and moving forward. They're intersecting with this culture in the psychedelics world that's sort of like anti-ownership. And so that this is the result of that is like these these forces will clash and they oppose with one another. And something that you wrote for, for Vice, you quoted Dr. Ben Sessa. He's a gentleman who I've actually had on this podcast a couple of years ago. He's a medical doctor and he's a proponent of the, the medicalization of psilocybin. So Sessa said some parts of the psychedelic community are saying it's going to become exclusive. That's nuts. It's the current situation that's exclusive. Psychedelics are used by a fairly small section of people, he says, mostly white middle-class trustafarians who can afford to fly off to Peru and have ayahuasca from their shaman. The majority of people don't use these drugs because they're illegal and they're banned by medicalizing them or corporatizing them or whatever you want to call it. We're increasing accessibility. So Shayla, to your mind, is there a way to corporatize psychedelics responsibly? Yeah, I think it's a tough question, though. I, I completely agree with Dr. Sessa that um, something like FDA approval and having psychedelic compounds available at doctor's offices it will not uh, make this something more elite than it is already. I think he's absolutely correct that the kinds of people who have been using psychedelics belong to a very specific sect of society. And there are many, there are many reasons, including stigma, cultural reasons, money reasons, that, uh, that people haven't been able to go into the jungle and do an ayahuasca retreat and, um, you know, or go, go to Europe and, and participate in all of these um, gatherings that have been happening. And, you know, we're going to, I'm going to leave indigenous use aside because obviously that's sort of a different context, but I think that having medical access and the accountability um, and safety structures that come along with that is really positive, especially when we think about opening this up, as I said before, as a mental health reporter to people in emotional distress or looking to this for simply recreational, spiritual, or ceremonial use. That's a great distinction. Now, FDA approval. FDA approval of psilocybin, for example, could likely affect the way the DEA schedules that substance. So all of these, uh, you know, compounds are illegal right now. And so if the FDA gives approval and says that something like psilocybin has medical value, it could very well influence the way the DEA schedules psilocybin. So I really see all of these access points as synergistic if your end goal is, um, you know, more access for more people in different ways. And I care a lot more about 
about like safety and accountability um, than I do whether somebody accesses it through like a doctor's office with FDA approval or like an organ through the licensing structure that they're setting up there. Now, FDA approval, would that translate to covered by insurance? Uh, it, it would not. <laughs> and so I think this is another really huge outstanding question, again, thinking about it from a mental health perspective. Um, I'm not that worried about the insurance covering psilocybin, the synthetic molecule itself. These are pretty cheap and affordable drugs to make um, in terms of like just the molecule. Uh, what I really worry about is the insurance. So we we have a really horrible, speaking from a US perspective, coverage of psychotherapy right now. Most therapists um, are out of network and that's because that's how they can make money. They don't get enough reimbursement from insurance companies. We're supposed to have mental health parity in this country. We definitely don't. Again, I've been in therapy for a long time and I've never had an in-network therapist because it just, I've never been able to find somebody who was actually good that I wanted to work with within my insurance plan. And I've been so lucky to have insurance. So what I really worry about with insurance coverage is whether therapy will be covered and also the regulation of therapy, which has never been done before. I think we all know that um, the therapeutic piece of this is going to be really important, uh, which is what the per what the guide or facilitator actually does with the person. That's never been regulated by the FDA before. So I think there's a big like logistical question there about who's going to pay for those therapy hours, who's going to make sure that all the therapists are providing consistent, safe care. And like I said before, this is a chance where we can speak up at the beginning before these things are all in place because they're really making these decisions now. Coming soon at Esalen, integration from the core, embodiment through yoga, dance, and sound meditation. Drawing on the embodied practices of yoga, pranayama, sound meditation, and conscious dance, reconnect your bodies and minds, digest your feelings and emotions, and open yourself to the wisdom of your heart. Led by Jovina Chan, one of the greatest human beings to walk this planet. Learn more or apply now at esalen.org. Shayla, I read several of your articles, I listened to some interviews, and I noticed there was a trend there, which I would simplify as kind of a studied distrust of capitalism and of tech bros culture. This was expressed as well during a, an interview that I heard you give about stoicism within the tech culture. I found all of this to be quite interesting and useful because a lot of the coverage of psychedelics is sort of done with wide-eyed wonder or preachers to the choir, and that's kind of the angle I've been covering. In typical Vice fashion, you're kind of playing the role of the cynic or devil's advocate. What do you think? Is this inevitably going to end up the way most capitalistic ventures do with a kind of Calvinistic power struggle that leaves a few winners and lots of losers? In, in regards to psychedelics, there is sort of this frustration that like we're entering this space where if profit is the only thing that matters, we're going to end up with all of the flaws of our existing mental health care system, which is that like everything's really expensive and nobody can afford it. And if you're rich, you can afford it. No problem. But everybody else can't. And so um, I think it, I think there's this desire to not let the psychedelic world sort of be sucked up into that. I think that's a, a, a worthy desire, of course, but I also think that one of the big emphases of my work has been like 
to recognize that psychedelics are going to integrate into pre-existing systems. So it's not like once psychedelics get FDA approval, they're gonna magically exist in this other different healthcare system that's not flawed. They're gonna exist in the healthcare system that we have, again, speaking from a US perspective, where like most people don't have it. We don't have universal healthcare. People don't have time to take off work to do these long therapy sessions and integration and all of this stuff. And so I think, um, thinking about late stage capitalism is important in the context of psychedelics and that it reminds us that the way our system works is it incentivizes profit above above all else. And just to remember that um, and to sort of like have that in the back of our mind when we're advocating for ethics and what might be the most helpful for people. Shayla, you wrote about decriminalization, which I'd like to dig into just for a moment. Many states are pursuing decriminalization of psychedelics, but simultaneously on a federal level, the, the FDA is likely to approve psychedelic assisted therapy for both MDMA and psilocybin, probably in the next two years. You point out that some people on either side are worrying that that one may negatively affect the fate of the other. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hear this all the time. I hear um, decrim people being against the medical model. I hear medical model being against the decrim model. And I really think that there's no there's no conflict here. I, I really don't see why these two things can't coexist. And I, I really see them existing for different groups of people. So, uh, you know, as I said before, like FDA approval will likely influence scheduling and decriminalization laws and legislation. So I, I really see them as synergistic processes. Right. But does Compass Pathways agree with you? There was uh, Proposition 109, which got passed in Oregon, and that, <clears throat> that sought to create a path whereby individuals age 21 or older could get legal access to mushrooms. You wrote about Compass Pathways, whether or not they attempted to hinder the passage of this bill. Yeah, I, this is a great example, I think, of... Um both sides being really wary of each other's actions. So like, like I said, Compass has filed for patents, so the patents are being challenged. That's sort of a separate issue than this. There was an accusation that they were trying to get involved in Oregon and stop the bill there. Um, then of course, when I spoke to the people at, 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 at char in charge at Compass, they said, we didn't do that. Uh, that they're making it up. So this is a, another great place where I think journalists can get involved. Um, so I filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get this alleged correspondence between a psychiatrist at Oregon and George Goldsmith, who's one of the founders of Compass, just to see what was actually said. And I think the actual correspondence that took place between the two parties was kind of neither as extreme nor as benign as either side was saying. Um, like to, par to paraphrase, it's, it was something like, you know, hello, I would like to reach out to you because I'm of Compass and we're doing all of these FDA breakthrough therapy trials, phase 2B clinical trials. Um, and then there was like a sentence in the email that said like, we firmly believe that this should be developed along existing regulatory standards with FDA oversight. It's clear that a majority of Oregon voters think differently. Do you have do you have time to set up a call? And so, of course, I'm sure there's a lot of implied messaging within within this email. But I think the greater problem here is that these warring sides we really see their approaches as fundamentally different. And maybe they are. Maybe they are really different. And maybe there is something to be said about like if psilocybin is legal everywhere, like it will be in Oregon. How much money can a for-profit company make? if you have to go to your doctor's office for it. But I even think that is sort of a false dichotomy because I really think that there are people who will want to do this with the support of um, the medical system. And, and I think, like I said, I, I have no problem if that's what people choose to do. So I, I, I think I'm really moving towards like, a, I really don't want to criticize any of these models that are 
focusing on safety and efficacy. I care so much more about whether things are safe and effective and uh, you know not exclusionary to certain groups based on like money or class than I care about whether it's like through licensing structure or through the, through FDA approval. So I think there are more fundamental um, you know agreements that we all need to come to no matter what the model is. I'd like to ask you about the crucial differences between a nonprofit and for-profit within the worlds of psychedelic business. So MAPS, of course, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, that is the most famous nonprofit just up the road from the Esalen Institute in, in, in Santa Cruz. I just recently conducted an interview with um, the co-founder of Numinous, uh, Peyton Nyquist, and Numinous is a for-profit company that works in conjunction at times with, with MAPS. So really just asking you, are these two worlds at odds with one another or do they tend to play nice or what? This is another place where I think there's been kind of a false dichotomy set up and something um, that I've been thinking about is making sure not to perpetuate that narrative in my own work in the future. Because I think it's not as simple as the sort of black and white, like good guys, bad guys kind of thing. So MAPS is a perfect example. MAPS is a nonprofit, but it actually has a for-profit embedded within it. So it has a public benefit corporation, the MAPS public benefit corporation within MAPS, and that's a for-profit branch of MAPS. Um, that exists, you know, within their structure. So they have this really interesting company setup where they have the nonprofit, but then they also have this other piece of it that can make money and then the money fuels their research. So I think we're going to start to see these more hybrid models in this space. And again, I just want to point out like how interesting this is because other biotech like health companies don't even care about having these conversations. They're not like, should we be nonprofit or for like it doesn't really exist. Like nonprofit healthcare, like nonprofit pharma is not really a thing. And so I think it's really remarkable to even see these discussions and, and be having them. I think it's a um, you know, it's a sign that maybe things really can be different in this space in, in a positive way. So I, I think that there, there are negatives to for-profits, right? Obviously, as we talked about already, when you exist in a capitalist model and profit is the incentive, um, it, it, can, it can sometimes happen that other things go to the wayside in terms of like access and cost um, and ethics. But I, I think in, in, and in the nonprofit space, something like USONA, I'm really a fan of open science, like their pledge to just share everything and never file for patents, like just philosophically, I, I align with that. Um, but there's a lot of middle ground between these two areas. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more of that. And um, even in terms of patents, for example, like there are very benevolent ways that companies could use patents in the future. For example, you could file a patent on something so that you can keep the cost low so that you're in charge of it and keep the cost low. You could file a patent on something and then donate it to the public domain. Um, I've seen some companies, you know, set up uh, indigenous reciprocity trusts for profit companies, and they can only do that if they have this excess money um, that they're making as a for-profit company. So I think that what sort of similar is like the FDA model versus like legalization, what matters most is like what people are actually doing, not exactly what the model is that they're operating within. And I think that we're going to see both whether the nonprofits can continue to compete with the for-profits as there become more and more of them, I think is an open question. Um, and like I said, big fan of open science and all of the sort of philanthropic work that the nonprofits pledge to do. But I think it's a little more complicated than just like nonprofit versus for-profit. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. That's, that's great. So Shayla, I talk to people in this world quite a bit and there's, often a kind of psychedelic evangelism that they'll, they'll share. And admittedly, I, I tend to share sometimes. 
and that's an intuition or a hope that psychedelics can kind of change the intractable. And I'm not just talking about the mental health conditions that they've so far proven to change, such as PTSD and depression, but, but also cultural conditions. And I'm curious to hear from, from your perspective as a journalist and somebody who's getting to know this space pretty intimately, do you think psychedelics have the potential to change culture, save our species, or perhaps is this promise of psychedelics somewhat overblown? Yeah, I, I really wish that I could believe that it would change change everything for the better and that, you know, we would do something about the ecological crisis and there would be no more hate and no more war. I, I just don't think there's evidence for that, which, again, I, I'm very sad to say because I would love for those things to happen. But um, I wrote a piece recently that's about this called called the false promise of psychedelic utopia again I, I say this with like a heavy with a heavy heart because I would love for it to be true but I think there's so much evidence um, and uh, there's a really good research article by Nishay Devineau and Brian Pace showing right-wing ideology that matches up with psychedelic use and I think a, a good example of this and more most recently was the QAnon shaman who was one of the um, people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th who had an extensive history with psychedelics and that led him, you know, to extreme beliefs that do not always match up with um, the kinds of beliefs people talk about when they talk about psychedelic use. There's also some really good anthropological work showing that people don't really change their behaviors in terms of like um, making them greener or more eco-friendly after ayahuasca trips. They continue, for example, to like fly every year to, to go to them and, uh, you know, they don't really change their day-to-day -day behavior. So I, I don't think it's that simple. I think that many people who have taken psychedelics up to this point and those that we've heard about the most have sort of self-selected into a group of people with pre-existing ideas and ideals. And I, and I don't mean to say that psychedelics can't be very transformative. I think they can, that's their whole, um, you know, the whole point of them being a potential mental health option. But I think that, um, you know, Nishé and Brian call them pluripotent, which is this idea of like a cell that can become any kind of cell uh, in the body. And so there's this idea that like psychedelic use could become almost anything depending on the set and setting depend which means you know how people use it their mindset going into it their intentions and so I think to assume and to just say it's all gonna turn out rosy um, is sadly I, I don't really see that happening and I, I also think that um, that idea sort of perpetuates something that I'm, I'm very you know I think is very important to talk about which is it's sort of uh, ignores the systemic causes for a lot of the world's problems. So the idea that we can just change, you know, that individuals can change their mind and then the world will become a better place. There's, there's been a very similar approach in mental health, which is that like people with mental health issues, they just need treatment and then they'll be better when, but then when they go out into the world, it's actually a lot of these systemic forces that are like, causing trauma and like making it very difficult for them to flourish and, and do all the things that they want to. So, you know, when I think about this question of whether psychedelics will change the world or change our culture, sometimes I think, and I, I don't mean to be glib when I say this, but like, I think that universal healthcare and raising the minimum wage and having like housing as a human right would do a lot more to change the world than like if everybody got a psilocybin trip um, on the planet. So it's, it, Again, it, it's the kind of thing where I think we should just take it slow and like 
do the research and see what kinds of indications these substances are really good for. And then at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm against the, the criminalization of drugs. Like I think the advocacy movements on, on the decrim side are doing really great work. And, um, but, but assuming and expecting that there's going to be this global worldwide changes, unfortunately, I think too much, too much to expect. Shayla, I was wondering if you could mention some of the key articles that you've written in case some of our listeners would like to go digging on, on Vice to explore these issues in, in more depth. Yeah, so I can mention some of my some of my favorite pieces that I've written. Um, I, I wrote a piece recently about the, the new field of drug discovery, which is a bunch of researchers are trying to come up with brand new drugs that are similar to psychedelics, but are not the classics that you're aware of. And I think those are gonna play a big role in the future of psychedelic medicine. Um, and these are drugs we haven't really even heard of yet. Um, there's the piece I mentioned on the false promise of, of psychedelic utopia, which is all about these issues of whether or not psychedelics will make the world a better place. Um, and then one of my favorite pieces that I've ever written is about uh, the, this component of spirituality in psychedelics, because we've never really had a therapy before that had to reckon so intimately with metaphysics um, and spirituality and mysticism. And I think there's a big question there of how much of a role the therapist will play in responding to and guiding that spirituality and making sure that it's patient driven and not coming from anywhere else. So those are a few off the top of my head that I would love people to read. Shayla Love, you are featured in the recent Vice documentary, Psychedelic Capitalism. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'd love you to you come back in, in a little while and let's, let's continue exploring these topics, if you will. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you're liking this show, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. And hey, while you're at it, share on social media. Until next time, be well.